You ready? Yeah, okay. I'm ready. I'm so I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> sitting in your booth, and there's like different stuff on the booth, and one of the things is, a, I'm going to call it a stress ball, even though it's shaped like a little, like Pepe Le Pew skunk. That's Dr. Meho Mankad. He's a psychiatrist at Duke, and he wants you to know you've probably been using a stress ball wrong. What most people do with stress balls is that they will just like squeeze them, like. Um, almost in a pulsatile way, like they'll just kind of squeeze, let go, squeeze, let go, squeeze, let go. And they think that that's doing something to help them relieve stress because it's called a stress ball. (laughs) But that's actually not how stress balls are supposed to work. Um, If you squeeze it rhythmically, what you're actually doing is exercising. And so what you really want to do if you want to use a stress ball is to get the stress ball, put it in your hand comfortably, and, and you squeeze it and you squeeze it kind of as hard as you can. So I'd say like maybe like an eight out of 10 in terms of how hard you squeeze it. And then you hold it, and you hold it, and you hold it, and you hold it, and you hold it. And what's gonna happen is that your fingers are gonna kind of cramp, and your forearm is gonna burn a little bit, um, and it's, it's gonna be uncomfortable. And what you need to do is focus on the discomfort try to describe the discomfort in your mind. I can right now feel my second, third, and fourth fingers in this kind of like painful, kind of crampy way, and I can now feel the burning going into my wrist, and it's not cool, like it's not a good feeling. But then what I'm gonna do when I can't stand it anymore while I'm maintaining that sense of focus on my hand, I'm gonna let go. And then I'm going to feel what it feels like to let go. And that, my friend, is the stress relief. And let that wash over your hand, into your body, and into your mind. This is Voices of Duke Health. I'm Karishma Sriram. Besides being a stress ball expert, Dr. Mankad is also a psychiatrist at Duke and the Durham VA. He sat down with him and asked him to rewind a little and tell us what inspired him to be in medicine. So I am the son of two physicians, and my father's father was also a physician. So we've been, I think we've been practicing medicine in my family for Western medicine for for almost a century. Um, And so I was, you know, your good Asian American kid, uh, did well in school, um, interested in the sciences, uh, okay at math, and uh, then uh, was looking at colleges. And I ended up uh, in a program which was a seven-year deal. And so three years of undergrad and then... um, kind of a spot reserved in medical school for kind of the the fourth year, starting in the fourth year. You know, I I have to like find a time machine and thank my 17-year-old self for picking this particular program that I attended. Um, They allowed the undergrads to major in anything um, as long as we maintain a certain GPA and as long as we took all the pre-med courses. And so... I like to argue, 
And so I chose uh, philosophy as my major. Trying to understand what makes us us uh, and the idea of consciousness and mind and body and whether it's dual or single and those sorts of things just were fascinating to me. And I had this, this freedom to study them um, as deeply as I wanted for those three years. And then I thought, well, I'll just put that all away. That was kind of like my hobby um, and go to medical school. And I did. And somehow it kind of all gelled, right? It all came together. And I realized that my, my longstanding interest in science could be combined with my interest in consciousness and the mind in this specialty of psychiatry. So that was like really cool. Uh, and I had to figure, it took me like a year to figure out like, should I still be a surgeon or should I go into psychiatry? What did that decision process look like for you? I, so I was doing my urology rotation, which I, I absolutely loved. And I still, I still really like surgery. Um, I wish I could do both. Um, but uh, you know, I was just thinking my goal as a urologist or a urologic surgeon would be to perfect my manual skill set with specific procedures and do them over and over and do them as well as I could and to just kind of rinse and repeat and do that over and over again um, until retirement. And I'm sure there's a lot more to being a urologist than, than what I've described. But what I found in the same amount of time, so if I, if I spent the same number of hours in the psychiatry clinic, uh, and even if all the patients had the same diagnosis according to some manual, they were all unique. And what was so poignant and visible and clear to me was that uh, their lives and what was going on outside of just their symptoms impacted the treatments we chose and how we implemented them and what helped them uh, get better. So in actually one of our previous conversations in the listening booth, yeah. there's a family physician named Dr. Bynum, and he said something that really stuck with me. He said that a patient and physician interaction is a relationship. It's not just two people sitting in a room. It's them creating a relationship. But in and of itself, it is flawed because the patient always has to be more vulnerable than the physician. And I guess I was just kind of wondering, in the context of psychiatry, patients are, I think, the most vulnerable that they would ever be with any human being to you. How, how vulnerable do you allow yourself to be with them, or where do you draw that line? Oh, that is one of our favorite questions in psychiatry. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> like, do you have an hour? Because we, <laughs> Technically, we literally teach, you know, year-long courses just to try to address that question. Wow. Um, one of my mentors when I was in training said that all physicians and probably all nurses times like 10 uh, use their own emotional state as both a barometer and as a tool 
uh, to help people. But that is, is uh, reinforced in the field of psychiatry. Uh, it's the field where uh, your emotional state and that connection with the patient at that level is prized beyond almost anything else we do. And so figuring out how to walk that very special and privileged space in a way where you make it an inviting and open and safe environment for someone to be vulnerable, but then not necessarily get so sucked in yourself that you end up drowning in their unhappiness. Uh, that is a real challenge. Am I getting too close? Am I too distant? How do I convey to the patient that I'm here for them and that I'm friendly, but I'm not their friend? Mm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help them get to another place. And sometimes that involves saying things as tactfully as possible, but saying things they may not want to hear. So how to do that uh, is a combination of kind of, you know, book knowledge and then uh, wisdom from people who've been there yeah as therapists absolutely it's definitely an art has there been a moment where you entered a conversation with one of your patients and you were like I failed at that that did not go well um, I don't know if I helped them and how did that make you feel oh that happens so often places where I wonder if I've I've helped the person that is wanting something. They often cluster around issues that a lot of us find touchy. So if someone really wants to talk to me about their concerns about race, their concerns about gender, their concerns about religion, um, how do I let them speak and make it an environment where they feel heard if I actually hold views that are very different. And that, that's a challenge. But I still want to be there for them and I still want to be their doctor. That's hard. And so then those stick with me and I wonder like, well, how can I, how can I do this better? This person literally votes the exact opposite way that I do on a ballot. Um, but um, I want to be there for them. And the good news is I can ask them, right? How's it going? You know, do you think we're doing stuff that's helpful to you? And uh, if we're not, uh, let's, let's figure that out. So it's more of a discussion as opposed to a, I guess, fictional representation of physicians just being like, here, here's your prescription for something, or this is what yeah. I'm giving you. It's more of a shared decision process. What I tell some of my patients, I, the ones who are old enough to remember Yellow Pages, but, uh, you know, there I were... I am. You are? Okay, good. So they, they, they did exist. Maybe they still do. Uh, I haven't seen one in a while, but, um, you know, uh, psychiatrist is um, in the Yellow Pages right next to psychic. Um, and I'm not a psychic. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't actually know what you're thinking. Like, that's where the words come in. Like, you have to tell me 
what's going on? And so I'm going to be asking, how do you think it's going? So in those moments where maybe the conversation didn't go the way you wanted or what keeps you going? What keeps you wanting to come into work the next day? Yeah. Just to kind of riff off of your, your first point, for all of us in healthcare, we, you know, we're supposed to put that stuff at the door as much as we can before we step into the exam room, right? For the patient who's there, they're there oftentimes at their worst, and they need someone who's going to bring it, right? Who's going to be 100, who's going to be so fire, right? I'm learning these words from my son. Um, and so, yes, if we had a rough morning and I got to work late, um, I have to do my best to not let that impact um, any of my patient encounters. If I have a prior patient encounter that went uh, sideways, that really shouldn't affect the next one. Um, and that's also an art, and that's also challenging. That didn't really get at your question, and maybe, putting my psychiatrist hat on, maybe I'm stalling because I don't want to answer your question. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so the question was, how do I recover? Yeah, what motivates you to keep going? Um, one of the three domains that people study when they do these burnout inventories is whether the healthcare provider still derives a sense of meaning from their work. And so what I can say resolutely is that when I am having a rough go, whether it's in some sort of administrative task or directly in front of a patient and things are just not going the way that either of us want them to, that uh, when that encounter or when that experience is over, I can take a step back and remind myself that what we're doing here and what I'm trying to participate in has value and meaning. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Monkai. My pleasure. Um, I just, before we left, I wanted to plug his podcast for oh. a second. Um, it's called Psychiatry and Law. That's right. right. Okay. Um, it's an amazing podcast. Um, he's had incredible conversations with some of the best psychiatrists around the country, and I just highly, highly recommend the podcast. Thanks so much <laughs> for the plug. Absolutely. And thank you for coming in and sharing your story with us and um, teaching us how to use this stress ball. Now I know. Right on. <laughs> thank you. If you like what you just heard, we hope it'll spur your own conversations. Ask a friend what inspires them or what they're grateful for. And let us know if you would like to record a conversation in our listening booth. Visit www.listeningbooth.info to learn more. Voices of Duke Health was created by Anton Zeiker and Jonathan Bay. The show is produced by Susanna Robertson. Theme music was composed by William Dawson, musician-in-residence at Duke University Hospital, and produced, arranged, performed, and recorded by Mark Simonson and Jack Fleischman. Additional music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosevere. And special thanks to Duke Institute for Health Innovation for making this podcast possible. <laughs>